For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, it's hard to tell for January the 6th. Uh, we hope you are doing well. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. A little bit different show today for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it is January 6th, and we went back and forth on what we should probably do about this. Uh, should we address it all? Should we leave it alone? We've decided to address it. So we're going to talk about January 6th a little bit on the program today. Also, Alexander Salter, uh, economics professor down at Texas Tech is going to join us. We're going to ask him about some of the recent economic news that came out, uh, talk about things like the supply side issues that the economy is having, how that's driving inflation concerns, and also how the supply chain and things like that have come into the parlance and people's attention. And that's a good thing. People's economic literacy is coming up because of some of the bad economic news. And we'll talk to him about that. But first, uh, a bit of housekeeping. We've been talking a lot about COVID, like a lot of folks have, because we have to. It's the dominant issue of our day. Uh, and I have it. I've been under the weather the last couple of days. I got the call from the VA. Actually, we sat down to record with Alexander. I actually had to put him on hold for a minute because the VA was calling me. But I uh, spiked a fever, wasn't feeling good. Already had somebody in my household come down with COVID. Um, so I knew I was exposed. It wasn't a shock. Uh, but one of the things about working from home is you don't get to call in because there's nowhere to go. You're still at home. So as long as my voice holds up, we'll keep working. I just tell you that. So if there's a disruption to doing these hotel shows, that's what happened. We will try to keep you up to date on the social media if we get to where we can't do it. But as of right now, I'm doing okay. Uh, feel a little icky, but you can strap it up to do the show and we will press on. Uh, one other thing to open the show, we're going to talk about January 6th today. I really debated if I wanted to talk about this at all, because there's a lot of there's a lot of heat to it, not a lot of light, as we say when we're discussing things at ordinary times frequently. But I want to approach it this way before we talk about the specifics of it. Um, the system held. I know that doesn't sell a lot of copy, and that's not the popular thing, but the system held. The justice system is working through over 700 cases of the people involved. Most of those people involved are getting what you would call nuisance charges, trespassing, vandalism, things like that. Full of people that got violent uh, and attacked police officers and others. They're being charged as such. Uh, one of the more severe sentences was just handed out last week. Uh, a gentleman got five years. Uh, there was a vast majority of the people who went where they weren't supposed to, got caught up in the moment or, and or came looking for trouble and found it. And they have been charged. Uh, these court cases are showing us something, though, and it's not being covered. The system's working. 
the people that did something wrong are being charged and they're being held accountable. Remember, as bad as January 6th was, and it was horrible, I don't remember being that viscerally angry at something I was seeing on my TV since maybe 9-11. It really upset me. I hated it. But Congress convened again that very night. In football, we talk about things in defense called bend but don't break. You know, you can give up 99 yards, but if you don't surrender the touchdown, that's still kind of a win in a way. Bend but don't break. Maybe we should approach January 6th as an instance where democracy and our system of government bent a little bit, but it didn't break. Um, the people that thought they were going to stop an election or stop the certification of the election or were going to, or the very small handful of people who thought they might overthrow the government idiotically, by the way, because that was never going to happen. It was doomed for failure. Uh, they, they found out and they ran into a wall of reality. It was never going to work. All of this nonsense was doomed to fail, and the system was going to hold, and it did. Congress was back in session that night, and the people have been brought to justice over the last year, and the court cases are still continuing. I don't think we need to do super hyperbole about democracy almost fell. That's probably over the top. But we shouldn't tolerate violence at our capital. It was a horrible scene that I hope is never, ever repeated. We've focused so much on what happened outside. I think we've kind of forgotten what was going on inside the Capitol building. And I don't mean when the rioters got into the building. I'm talking about what was happening right before that, where Congress, uh, joint session of Congress, was supposed to be certifying the election. Some of the folks had this insane, crazy idea that there was going to be a way to stop the certification of this election. Let's just cut through some nonsense here. That was never going to happen. It was never going to work. The folks that praise uh, Mike Pence for doing that, Mike Pence saved him. No, he didn't. All right. Mike Pence did the bare minimum of doing his job and doing the right thing. But even if Mike Pence had tried to go along with this insane wackadoo theory, it would have never worked. There was no scenario whatsoever in which Donald Trump was still going to be president of the United States after January it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, my buddy Bert Lyko, uh, our colleague at Ordinary Times, goes into great detail as to how this process actually works. When you had people like these Congress critters and like Senator Ted Cruz, who stood up and bellowed, it is, and dramatically rose. Folks, Harvard-educated law school graduate Ted Cruz knew good and well that wasn't going to work. He knew good and well Joe Biden was still going to be the president. He knew good and well that what he was doing was going to fail. He was doing it because he knew it would fail and he wouldn't have any consequences to his actions, they thought, because they didn't know the rioters were going to drive them from the chamber in short order. Nevertheless, he knew it was all staged. It was all a scam. It was all manipulated. They just wanted to be able to fundraise and tell you about how hard they tried and to tell the Trump faithful how much they were on their side to try to do what they wanted them to do. We should have far, far more scorn for our Congress critters and senators that went along with this madness because the rule of law was very clear on what was supposed to be going on on January 6th before the rioters hijacked it forever. They were supposed to come in, they were supposed to do their duty, and they were supposed to get on with it. But instead, they wanted to do this performative nonsense. They wanted to do this kabuki theater. And it bit them. And they've paid for it ever since. 
Oh, they still have faithful people who take that as their mark of being a true believer, but that makes it just all the more insipid to me. The Ted Cruz's of the world knew good and well what they were doing. They knew it wasn't lawful. They knew they couldn't do it. They knew it wasn't going to work, and they did it anyway. We should judge them very, very harshly for it. The people that got caught up in the moment and the handful of people who really thought they were going to do some kind of stoppage of government that day and the people that did violence that day and the very small handful who maybe really thought they were going to overthrow the government or stop the count or whatever insanity got into their little heads, they should be punished by the law. But the people that know better, who hold elected offices, got off way too easy. They stoked it. They patted it on the head, they fed it, and then when it turned around to bite them, they tried to pretend like they didn't have anything to do with creating the monster. Shame on our Congress critters and our senators who went along with this madness for years and built and laid in the ecosystem that festered this mess. Shame on you. We're not going to forget it, even if you want us to. More Hertel right after this. Back to Herd Tell, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Um, since it is January the 6th, and people are, of course, debating January 6th, I'm just going to read from you what I wrote on January the 7th of last year. I'm just going to read it directly. I'm not going to change anything. This is what I wrote a year ago. And let's see how it holds up from ordinary-times.com, myself writing. There was what was supposed to happen and what really happened. There was this moment where it was all under control. The throngs of the Trump faithful were arrayed in the front of the stage, framing the White House beyond, waiting for a rally with the president himself. The usual suspects of Donald Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani had worked the crowd up and primed the pump for the main event. The former, warning the Congress that if they choose to go against Trump, quote, we're coming for you, and the latter blubbering about wanting a trial by combat. Then the president took the stage and all seemed just as it had for hundreds of other rallies before. Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, full of the moment, walked into the Capitol building across the line of not yet rioters with a raised fist in the air and cheers from the throngs. Then inside the chamber, the vice president called the roll of states. The great state of Arizona was called and Rep. Gosser stood and objected when challenged by the chair that the objection must be made in writing and signed by a senator. He proclaimed it is as Ted Cruz also bellowed it is and dramatically stood. Applause filled the right side of the chamber of those who had planned for these objections to be their moment to shine, to speechify, to pound their chests and talk directly to the camera about how much they love America and hated wrongdoing and needed to right the wrongs and blah, blah, blah. It was all under control, you see. It was all so carefully planned, choreographed, staged. The show of shows on this day a day for the Make America Again faithful. Today was the day. We're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, Trump told the crowd from the stage. We will never give up. We will never concede, he promised. Chance of BS and the long drone of fight for Trump answered his call. And they did go down to the Capitol while the president went back to the White House, put his feet up and settled in to watch the show as the throng approached the barricades. An optic of displeasure both within and without the capital that would grace fundraising, advertising, and political lore for a generation to come of what should have been. The coda to two months of swearing that the election had been stolen, setting up Magna 2.0 for the future, 
just as it was planned. It was also under control, you see. But then, not all of the MAGA had signed up for what came next. Not every Trump voter or wearer of a red hat or waver of a Trump flag sought to break the law, attack buildings, fight with the police, and wreak havoc. The recent history and video of the president, along with the real-time commentary of their social media accounts, tell us who did what. The true believers, the crazy makers, the unpersuadable, who for five years now had drank deeply of that draught of the integrated grifter set, kept flowing steadily to them. They now have their moment, their high watermark, their moment when the reality of the president of the present ripped through the fabric of mortal time and will forever give them their lost cause moment. Like a bizarro world MAGA Faulkner, they will now tell the tale to their children's children's children. It's all now, you see. Yesterday won't be over until tomorrow, and tomorrow began 10,000 years ago. For every MAGA diehard of an age to remember, not once, but whenever they want, there's this instant when it is still not yet noon on that January afternoon in 2021. The marchers are in position behind the steel temporary fencing. The cell phones are charged and ready to record, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out, and Trump himself with his blonde, coiffed, massive hair and his gloved hands, probably, and his sword-like tongue spouting off, looking up the hill, waiting to give the world, and it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hadn't even begun yet. Is not only has it not begun yet, but there's still time for it not to begin against the position and those circumstances which made more men than Cruz and Holly and Gossard and Gomart look grave, yet it's going to begin. We all know that. And we have come too far with too much at stake. And that moment doesn't need even a MAGA diehard to think this time, maybe this time with all this much to lose, then all this much to gain. Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, the world, the golden dome of Washington itself, the crown with desperate and unbelievable victory, the desperate gamble, the cast made four years ago. I can't believe this happened, some are reclaiming who lived through it. I can't believe this happened, the perpetrators giddily proclaimed as they filtered off through the Capitol grounds. What utter hogwash. The president diehard supporters planned this, relished in it, wanted it, begged for it. They had scared hotel owners in a shuttering shop rather than host them. They antagonized and accosted the most mild manner of politicians on their way to the district. They bragged on social media for days ahead of time, proudly recording themselves every minute of every day of the before, during, and after. The rioters who stormed the Capitol can say whatever they want about anything they want, but their actions drown out all of their words. They did what no one had dared do before, where no one had dared do it. The capital of the United States of America, according to their shouts, was theirs to do it as they pleased. A giant scratching post for them to alleviate their various political and cultural itches. It was a crime display. It was a criminal display of selfishness and thuggery of people wholly given to their own desires and passions to point that things like country and truth and right mattered not as long as they got their piece of video of them getting their jollies off in the previously forbidden to them halls of American power. Lives were lost. The Capitol was trashed in a horrified world and embarrassed America looked on with shock and dismay. Four years of words, pontifications, promises, and prognostications walked away by the images, washed away by the images of the United States Capitol under assault and temporarily cowered for the first time in over 200 years, not by a foreign enemy, but by a call to personality masquerading as a political movement being welded as a weapon to avenged perceived slights. The diehards will still defend it. Their lost cause of Trump too ingrained to let go even now. Laughably, they are trying to blame Antifa, 
But rather than standing against that destructive group, they now more and more closely resemble them in behavior than ever. For, but for most Americans in the wider world, the images of what the flag-carrying MAGA faithful did here are indelible. No amount of pointing to the civil unrest, riots, and looting of the past year by other people in other places does anything to justify or lessen what happened here. There will be ink and characters spent aplenty on the who and the why and the how this all went down. Whatever the result and consequences that occurred from the despicable actions of a mob, a president that incited them when, and then went MIA, leaving others to deal with the mess and a nation that now must reckon with it all. Most of the questions will not have easy answers, or at least satisfying ones, to an American people that damn well deserve better than their nation and attacked over the political ambitions of a few reigning chaos with a fire hose of lies. Damn them. When epic floods occur where I'm from, they paint the high water marks on the bridges and other structures to remind folks of just how far the destructive waters went. The high water mark of the worst of MAGA reached into the well of the U.S. Senate, the barricaded and armed door of the U.S. House of Representatives, and washed through the rotunda where we lay our most honored dead to lie in repose. Congress quickly re reconvened, and the people's business won the day while the mob receded into the night, but the speed of the return should not lessen what happened, or how much worse it could have been, should have been, and may have been. We better never do this again. The flood was high enough this time any higher, we will all be swept away. That's what I wrote on January the 7th. More Hertel right after this. Uh, it's Hertel, and we're with Alexander Salter, and you probably heard that we got more economic news, so we're going to talk to him about it. Uh, he's a professor of economics down in Texas Tech, the Rawls College of Business. He's a Young Voices contributor. You can find him writing all over the place, National Review, uh, Washington Examiner, various other places. Alexander, how are you, sir? Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, uh, we keep asking this question over and over again when we have economists or people that know about the economy on the show. Once again this week, we seem to have conflicting information. We have, for the fourth time in 2021, uh, the numbers of workers quitting their job hit a record, and then we turn around this morning and wake up to news that jobs are added to the economy. This doesn't make sense to people. Why do we keep getting, it seems like conflicting information because we hear about labor shortages, but the unemployment numbers low. This just doesn't make sense to a normal person. You're an economics professor. Teach us, explain this to us because I don't understand it. <laughs> It's a pretty tricky issue, Andrew, and this is a good place to start. So I think what we're really observing, and this is going to last for a while, is changes in the patterns of economic activity caused by the sudden stop, sudden start COVID economy. Things are still really out of whack. Businesses had to shut down. They had to restart again. Consumers were told they had to stay home, then they could go out again and purchase. You can't just restart an economy the same way that you reboot a computer. There are all sorts of patterns to economic activities that have to fit together like puzzle pieces, including in labor markets. So on the one hand, you have a number of people who are adjusting to new things like the ability to work from home instead of going into the office, uh, taking advantage of the fact that household balance sheets are particularly strong right now, maybe pursuing that dream career change that they always wanted. At the same time, that total spending in the economy is picking up and businesses are really trying to fill spots that just aren't being filled. So I think what we really have here is not a demand problem, but a mismatch problem. And that's going to take some time for the economy to work itself out. 
And really the only way for that is for markets to do what they do, allocate resources, link up consumers with producers and wait for prices to adjust to make things work well again. So what was the mismatch part? Was it a confluence of events? Was it just problems? Because it seems like some of the economic stuff with the COVID stuff was things that were already a problem. And then that extra pressure just kind of revealed the cracks. Um, Was it, there's of course, public panic with some of these things because people that can't get their kids to school and they can't work and things like that, that all adds into it. So what do you think it was that caused those things that made it a mismatch? Because obviously it's so unusual that we're seeing these things. This isn't kind of a naturally occurring event for a lack of a better term. What do you think made the mismatch? You're right. It was a confluence of events. It wasn't just any one thing. It was multiple things going wrong, well, quote unquote wrong at the same time. Obviously, COVID is tragic. It's terrible for the economy. There's not really a whole lot that we can do about it being there, but the policy responses that we chose do explain some of what's going on. Uh, Social distancing, stay-at-home orders, we already talked about the sudden stop, sudden start to economic activity. And again, on the demand side, you had rather extraordinary policy, both fiscal and monetary policy, to make sure that the uh, total spending side of the economy didn't bottom out. That started in 2020 and really is continuing all the way through today. Many lots of that policy is still going on. So when you have supply mismatches on the one hand, in the context of overall strong demand pressures on the other hand, that's a recipe for on the one hand inflation, which is what we're seeing right now. And then also on the other hand, markets are just having a really hard time sorting out which lines of production are feasible, where workers need to go. This is something that markets can do, but it's going to take time. And I would argue that public policy in the last couple of months to the last 18 months really has probably been a little bit more of a hindrance than a help to that. Yeah. And you've been writing about this. You wrote about it in Washington Examiner and other places. Uh, The gist of it was that we're having supply side problems. So we need some supply side issues. You called it and called for supply side liberalism. Uh, kind of explain that terminology because some folks might kind of look at that and like, what do you mean by supply side liberalism? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So you hear supply side economics and you typically hear, you typically think of an economic and political program typically associated with the American right. Supply side economics to people means usually the proposition that if you cut taxes, then tax revenues will actually go up. Because by cutting tax rates, you're going to incentivize so much more economic activity that people are going to produce more, spend more, so the overall size of the pie grows, tax revenues go up. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but that's not really what supply-side economics is all about. Supply-side economics focuses on the fundamental, indisputable point that the only way to raise income per person, the only way to make salaries go up over time, is for productivity to improve. If you want to consume more, you have to produce more. And so what we need to do in terms of public policy is make focused, targeted investments on improving those supply side conditions. The supply side is all about productivity, how good we are at turning the inputs we have at our disposal into outputs. The better at that we are, the more money we're going to come home with. I wrote that article in the context of the failure of President Biden's Build Back Better Act, because that was just too all-encompassing. There was just too much in there, too much corporate pork, too much stuff that just really shouldn't have been in there. But there was a kernel of a good idea in it, which is that 
strategic investments in the supply side in human and physical capital could actually improve economic conditions. Now, I myself am a conservative. I'm an economist of the right. So I'm not terribly fond of the idea of the federal government taking point on all this. But given that it seems to be a bipartisan consensus that we want the federal government to be making some of these investments, my way of thinking is let's at least make them good ones. Does this play back into what we started with? Because we talk, I know people talk about the great resignation and all this movement in the labor market and people um, quitting their jobs or looking for other jobs. Does that go into the human capital that you're talking about? Because I, I think there's something underneath all this where it's just a lot of these service workers, let's just take service workers for an example. They have more information than they've ever had before. They have technology and social media to know what other people are making and what they're making. And then when you have a crisis like COVID and then the economic crisis on top of it, they a lot of them, I think, just said enough. We want better. Isn't that part of this human capital you're talking about is just I think people are just more tuned into it because of the crisis. And they don't think of it in an economic term, but I think just collectively, a lot of people are like, I want better and I'm going to do something better for me. And that's where some of this stuff is coming from. You could definitely tell a human capital story there. So the way that would work is that workers in those lines of productions, as you said, think they can do better by taking this time, by using the fact that household balance sheets are particularly strong due to the fact that they couldn't really spend a whole lot except from home on Amazon maybe for a while. And of course, the direct checks from the federal government really made people flush with cash. If you're going to make investments in human capital, now seems like a particularly good time to do that. Those investments can be most effective if you specialize in being a student or a trainee worker or doing something other than traditional full-time employment. So that might be part of what's going on. The other part of it is that all these policies that we just talked about for uh, other reasons might make workers slightly less willing to offer their labor services in general. And that's a more familiar supply side story, right? We only recently got over the time period where the federal government was being pretty generous and paying people not to work. Well, when you subsidize something, you get more of it. That's economics 101. People people not to work, people won't work. Yeah. And the other part of this that we now have enough numbers on, because we got about two years of COVID data now, give or take, uh, a large portion of those people leaving the workforce was actually older workers, workers that wanted to retire early or they wanted to downscale to part-time or whatever the case may be. What What is it? Because a lot of economics for the last few years, there's a major generational shift. Of course, we, we hear ad nauseum about baby boomers, but it is a fact. You have a large portion of the working population that are phasing out, and that happened right in the middle of COVID on top of it. Talk about how that moves economic numbers as well. That's another human capital story, really. You just have this massive part of the workforce for the last 30, 40 years, and they, they've kind of thrown up their hands a lot of them and said enough. Yeah, there's been some interesting trends in labor force participation. The labor force participation rate is basically the size of your labor force, right, divided by the number of people who are looking for jobs. And so when you actually get that number, it's telling you the fraction of adults who are actively looking for jobs, who want to be in the labor force as a percentage of the overall working age population. So what does that tell you? It basically tells you how much of your population you have tied up in economic concerns. And over the course of the pandemic, that figure fell by about 1%. We're in the neighborhood of 60% labor force participation right now, give or take a couple of percentage points. You probably want to fact check my figure on that. Now that's the top line figure, but underneath all that, there's some really interesting stuff going on. 
So it's true that a lot of people who probably had five to 10 years more until retirement conventionally understood, decided maybe they wanted to take it early. Maybe they wanted to take advantage of the fact that again, household balance sheets are strong. So now seems like a pretty good time to uh, readjust your plans and maybe get a little bit more out of retirement. That's one thing that's going on, but there are also a significant number of older workers. We're talking 55 and up and especially 65 and up who have re-entered the labor force. They're taking other jobs. They're seeking employment and filling jobs when previously they weren't. So on the whole, you do have labor force participation going down, but based on demographic trends underneath that top line number, it's not a very clean and clear story about the baby boomers retiring and then the young kids stepping up, but maybe they're not so willing to work as we would like. There's a lot of intergenerational stuff that cuts against the grain. And that's, I think, going to play into the labor market mismatch story that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And let's take real quick, talking to Alexander Salters uh, on her tell, let's take the other end of that real quick. There's obviously a lot of movement among the very young, talking college age, uh, quickly leaving college age. They are finding alternate things. You have a, you know, the gig economy, uh, the creator economy, these sorts of things. So while that's all going on, you have this new generation of people that are trying to find their way and they're doing it in somewhat unconventional means. Also, they're not all just going into a career type uh, career path, right? That could be part of it. I don't really have a good handle on the fraction of college graduates or young people in that age category who are looking for a traditional 40 hours a week full-time employment versus people who are doing piece rate writing or get a gig economy work like driving for Uber or something like that. Based on the numbers that I have seen, that usually tends to be supplemental work, things that they do in addition to their full-time jobs, but it's not out, it's not unheard of for people to engage in that piece rate work or contract work full-time. The interesting thing there is that states, uh, depending on state level policy, sometimes make it very hard for people to be full-time contractors. It's harder in some states and easier in other states. And so I would really want to dig into the data and look at those trends as well. Yep. Looking at you, California. Uh, We're talking to Alexander Salter. Uh, We're going to continue with him in a minute. We're going to get into a little bit of the policy side of some of this stuff. Uh, Also ask him a little bit about some supply chain stuff and uh, one of our recurring topics of China. Uh, We'll continue with him on Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, we're with Alexander Salters. We're talking a little bit of economics and such. Um, one thing is fine. I'm actually a transportation guy by trade. Uh, that's how I made a living before I could make a living that way anymore. And I became the world's least compensated writer. Uh, but I found it kind of heartening. The year 2021 was the year where I think we had a good public reckoning on folks understanding parts of the economy, such as the supply chain. And I know some of it was from panic and toilet paper and some of the silliness. Do, do you as an economist, do you take it as a good sign, even though it was for bad reasons, that people maybe for the first time started paying attention to things like supply chains, like uh, just-in-time ordering, how they actually get their goods in the store, just kind of some practical economic stuff? I, I think that's a good thing, isn't it? I definitely think it's a good thing for the public to be more informed about just how many things have to go right in order for the goods and services that are on their shelves that they buy every day how that actually happens. We take that for granted, right? We take for granted the miracle of the market. This is something that we try and really hit home. And when we teach our econ 101 classes, we professors, the fact that you can go out and buy for a fraction of your hourly wage, a fantastic meal 
is really a miracle when you count all the things that have to go into that. Now, it gets even more complicated when you have talking about things like computers that have semiconductors or cars that have smart chips in them when those parts are serviced from all over the world. So on the one hand, it's good that the public has become more sensitized and aware of just how miraculous and sometimes fragile that can be. On the other hand, you do have to worry that public passions would get a little bit out of hand and the public policy responses demanded by the public might not be the best ones going forward. So for example, when you have this, uh, when you have this public outcry about the fact that a lot of our medical supplies were coming through China and China is a geopolitical rival, they're not necessarily a friendly nation to us and we would want to make sure that those lines of production are protected. I understand that argument for national security reasons and I'm willing to concede its force. My problem is when we uncritically generalize that insight to other goods and services as well, right? Whatever national security exceptions there are to repatriating strategic supply chains, we need to understand that the global division of labor is actually a good thing. Restricting it is going to make us poorer. There might be other reasons why we might want to restrict the global division of labor for other political goals, but I also worry that this focus on supply chains is going to kindle the fire of this sort of neo-mercantilist anti-trade ideology that you sometimes see on both the left and right. So that has me a little bit suspicious. All right. There was a lot of really big words right there in that last little phrase. So let's zoom out for just a second, though. We just because I, I think people maybe don't I know I don't fully comprehend it, even though I try to follow this stuff. Why is it that China dominates this so much? Uh, just kind of explain it to me like I'm five for a second. Is it their 750 million strong workforce? Is it their geopolitics? Is it, you know, the ability of their obviously the Chinese Communist Party to control the entire country? Why is it that they're so dominant? Because we just keep talking about it to the point that China is almost the buzzword now. And we don't really think about it, but just explain to people real quick why they're so dominant in our supply chain. You hit on a number of really good reasons. One, just sheer size of the Chinese economy. Two, sheer size of the Chinese labor force. Three, the fact that China actually has an authoritarian political system, which can treat the country as one big firm if it really wants to. Now, obviously, it doesn't have minute control over a lot of things that a conventional business firm would have. But the relationship of the Chinese Communist Party to that country's economy is categorically different than the relationship of the United States government to the United States economy, except during times of maybe a declared war. Right? We can talk about the command economy that we had during the world wars earlier in the 20th century, but that's really the exception rather than the rule for liberal democracies. There are also economic forces at work. This just happens to be China's comparative advantage right now. China is a middle income country. We've talked a lot about meteoric economic growth from China over the past decades, and they have grown quite quickly. But let's keep in mind that GDP per capita in China is about the same as GDP per capita in Mexico. China is not yet a wealthy country. It's a middle income country, which means that it's going to specialize in producing these things like medical supply goods that largely consist of taking existing ideas for putting parts together and assembling a good and shipping it somewhere else. So we over relied, I think, on, on having our division of labor and international supply chains run through China because we were hoping that economic liberalization and integration into international institutions like the World Trade Organization would cause China's political system to liberalize, basically that they would become nice liberal democratic capitalists like us. 
Uh, unfortunately, it has not worked out that way. And it seems that a lot of what our economic policy decisions have done with respect to China have really enriched an adversary that seems all too willing to use its weight, to, excuse me, to throw its weight around to cause us all sorts of problems. And this goes to something that uh, I know we share, but when we're talking about liberty and we're talking about freedom and we're talking about um, giving people the maximum opportunities, there there's an overarching thread here because whether we're talking about you know something like the lockdowns for COVID, that's a freedom issue, but we're also talking about trying to liberalize a you know communist dictatorship in China, that's a freedom issue as well. Economics is freedom and how you have economics and giving people opportunity is key to freedom. I know you write about this, you talk about it a lot, but just go into that for just a minute, though, that if you don't have people having economic opportunity, the rest of these freedoms really don't mean a lot because they're not going to be able to do much with them. There has been a perception that China has, quote unquote, liberalized its economy a lot over the last 30 years. And to the extent that we mean allowing market mechanisms and free exchange to operate more than had been operating previously, that's true. But it is absolutely not true that China's economy is a liberal capitalist economy by any stretch of the imagination. China is not a capitalist country. Its political system is straight up authoritarian. This is a freedom issue. This is a human freedom and human dignity issue. And that's why I, for one, am rethinking a lot of views that I had with respect to China and beginning to think that maybe strategic decoupling from China's supply chains might actually be best for U.S. liberty in the long run. Is it that we think, um, especially people our age, we were kind of ingrained with, we brought down the Soviet Union through economic power and cultural power, and we just don't understand that that's just not going to work here. This is a totally different system. Is that just kind of ingrained into the American ethos of, well, we won the Cold War doing it this way, and that way ain't going to work with China? Is that part of the problem here? Among the class of people who are policymakers, maybe, but they're actually a little bit older, right? America's quote unquote governing class is, is a generation older than ours. And the fall of the Soviet Union is probably the formative international relations experience of their lifetime. And that's probably where they're getting their playbook. For people our age or younger, I actually worry it's just the reverse. They don't have any experience of socialism. They don't have any experience of communist tyranny, which is why you have young people overwhelmingly approve. Well, I shouldn't say overwhelmingly approve because I don't think it's even in a majority yet. But compared to previous questions when they were asked in polls over the decades, a record high amount of young people, a fraction of young people have favorable opinions to socialism and communism. And I think that that's just because they frankly don't know what those words mean and what those economic political systems entail. I'm very, very confident that if they got a whiff of that in terms of what it's actually to like to live under those systems, they would become liberal democratic capitalists very quickly. Yeah. Talking to Alexander Salter. All right. Uh, put your economic hat back on for a second. Where's the economy at? We hear all the noise. Uh, we hear all the panic. Uh, we have the screaming headlines. What's the actual condition of our economy right now as we enter into 2022? The economy is not as bad as some of the doomsday prophets are saying, but make no mistake, we could be in a stronger position. The major issue right now is inflation. I still think that a major driver of inflation is supply side issues. 
When productivity goes down, all else being equal, turning inputs into outputs gets harder, which raises costs all throughout the economy, drives prices up. Now, that doesn't mean that monetary policy, what the Fed is doing in terms of printing money and buying all those assets, that doesn't mean monetary policy has nothing to do with it. It just means, I think, if we're being honest, we have to have a modest view of how much the Fed can bring this thing down. I would expect by the end of the year, inflation to fall back within fairly normal parameters, 2.5% to 3.5%. Labor markets, that's going to take a little bit longer to work out. Businesses are probably going to have to bite the bullet and just offer the wages that they're offering to employees. People wonder why all the Burger Kings across the country are empty. It's because all the owners of those franchises are paying or trying to get away with paying their workers $8.50 an hour at a time when there's record inflation. Right? We haven't seen these inflationary numbers for 40 years. You're not going to be able to get away with paying the same salaries now as you could when inflation was only 10%. So when you look at all that and look at the broader economic trends for the economy as a whole, we're doing okay with producing, we're doing okay with consuming. I think it's just going to take some time for those patterns of specialization and trade to readjust. And when they do, we'll be in better shape. My major concern going forward isn't even inflation. My major concern is the deficit. The federal government has taken on unfathomable amounts of debt to fight COVID. And that's really going to strain our borrowing capacity later. And if interest rates eventually start to go up, which I think they will, because interest rates usually go up when economic growth across the globe goes up, that's going to make it harder for Uncle Sam to borrow. We already have pretty high borrowing costs. We're going to quickly look at a situation where just paying the interest on the national debt is going to absorb something like 15% of GDP which means we have less important public funds available for investing in those things that we want Uncle Sam to invest in. Especially with inflation running as high as it is right now, the last thing that we want to invite is a fiscal crisis. So as counterintuitive as it seems, now might be the time to tighten our belts. One last question for Alexander Salter. Uh, We know that the deficit spending and this sort of thing, that's all kicked the can down the road though. Give me a time frame on that, kick the can down the road, because I know all of my life I've heard about the deficit. There's no real appetite politically and in the social conscience to really deal with that issue right now. There just ain't. That's just the truth of it. It's all lip service. Five years, 10 years, 15 years. When's that bill come due? I can't remember if it was Harry Truman or FDR who said, gee, I wish that I could meet a one-armed economist, because economists are always saying, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, sorry, old economics joke. I use that that fun story to introduce the fact that it really depends on something that I can't predict, which is how far and how fast interest rates are going to go up. We've gotten away with all the borrowing and all the deficit finance because for the past 30 years, interest rates have been trending downwards and they've been at near record lows for quite some time now, more than a decade. This is unusual. This isn't something that you can solely blame on monetary policy. Monetary policy can lower interest rates in the short run sometimes, but not in the long run. Something else is going on. As long as interest rates stay as low as they are, you can probably continue to sustain this amount of borrowing. But as soon as the cost of borrowing goes up, as soon as the interest service on the debt goes up, as soon as bond markets say, you know what, Uncle Sam, things aren't looking so good with your finances right now. I'm going to have to get paid a little bit more to lend you my money. That's when we could be in a world of hurt. It could happen next year. It could happen 15 years from now. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know. I think the sanest approach, though, is not to wait for it to happen to make the necessary adjustments. Interest rates will go up at some point. We don't know when, but they will. 
it's better to have our fiscal house in order before that happens. Yeah. Alexander Salter, he's explaining economics so well that even I can understand it. Let folks know where they can follow you on your social media and what you got going on, sir. Sure. So I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Alex W. Salter. And you can find all of my writing, including my public writing, op-eds that I've published in places like National Review, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Examiner, and the American Mind at www.awsalter.com. And my email address is on my website too. I'm always happy to chat with readers. Drop me a line. Yeah, we appreciate your time so much. Alexander Salter, great resource. We'll definitely have you back. Because uh, I got a feeling, especially since it's an election year, that we're going to be talking lots of it's the economy stupid this year. So thank you for your time, sir. Sounds good, Andrew. Take care. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. This mess in Virginia on I-95, have you seen this? Uh, Washington Post, Virginia highway officials continue to clear icy roads in the Fredericksburg area on Wednesday, a day after snowfall paralyzed a 48-mile nearby stretch of Interstate 95, leaving some motorists stranded for more than 24 hours on one of the nation's busiest interstates. Many travelers reported having little or no food and water. Others said they felt abandoned in a freezing vehicles for hours, often with jackknife tractor trailers blocking lanes and off-ramp with no signs of a snowplow, police cruiser, or other government help. More than 50 vehicles were found abandoned or empty of gas, and some motorists left them to walk along the icy, snowy highway for help. VDOT said crews were quickly overwhelmed by the heavier and faster-falling snow than had been predicted. Meanwhile, local officials questioned how the snowstorm resulted in one of Washington region's worst traffic disasters since a snowstorm during an evening rush hour in 2011 left Virginia motorists stranded on the George Washington Memorial Parkway overnight. It's out of the Washington Post. This is where I have to give credit to uh, Hertel's uh, most avid watcher and listener, uh, my mother, who's always watching. Mom, love you. Um, We tease her a little bit. We kid her a little bit. Every vehicle that they own uh, is packed to the gills with emergency snacks, blankets, jackets, all manner of things, flashlights, you name it. She's got it. But stories like this go to remind you why that is. It's a good thing to be prepared, especially on travel. Um, I remember one time we were traveling as children. We didn't have anything to block a tire or chalk the tire when we needed to change a tire. And to this day, she still carries a brick in every vehicle we have, just in case we ever need to change a vehicle tire again. So this one's a shout out to my mother. If we were stuck in that uh, mess, we would have been well prepared because she just is. The moral of the story is you should always be prepared for very bad things to happen, especially in bad weather. Uh, Make sure you have a kid in your vehicle that at least has some blankets, some snacks, uh, some extra water, those sorts of things. You never need it until you do. And then when you do need it, you'll be thankful you got it. More Hertel right after this. back to Hertel. We always try to end on a little bit of a happier or lighter note in the program. This is a cool little story from Mary Claire. Um, in a heartwarming news, Queen Elizabeth II of England addressed a letter to a little girl who had dressed up as her for Halloween via her lady-in-waiting, the Honorable Mary Morrison. The letter was addressed to the girl, Jaylene's, I think it's Jaylene maybe, 
I apologize if I'm not pronouncing it right, family who had sent the monarch a photo of their daughter dressed as her in a pastel blue coat and matching hat, strings of pearls, a gray wig, and pastel pink shoes and bag. Jaylene also posed next to two corgis, the full Queen Liz effect. Of course, the queen uh, famously loves her corgis. Um, The photos are on social media. Quote, the queen wishes me to write and thank you for your letter and for the photograph of you thoughtfully enclosed. Morrison wrote in a letter dated December 9th and shared to the, to the today's show via Us Weekly. Her Majesty thought it kind of you to write her, and the queen was pleased to see the photograph of your daughter, Jaylene, in her splendid outfit. Her Majesty hopes you all have a very Merry Christmas, and I am enclosing a little information about the royal pets, which Jaylene might have. I don't know. I think the little girl might be just as excited about getting the letter from the Royal Corgis as the monarch herself. That'll do it for her tale today. Uh, we will venture forth. Uh, we're going to kind of fight through the sickness and do our best with it. So uh, try to bear with us with the voice and those sorts of things going ahead. As far as I know, we should be able to continue making these shows at least through the rest of the week. Uh, but if something happens, just understand that that's what's going on. Follow us on the social media at Hertel Show at Twitter. Uh, Four for the Fire on Twitter for my personal Twitter. We'll update you if there's going to be a break in these shows. Uh, also, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Hertel Show at gmail.com. You can email us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, things like YouTube, if you're watching on the Big Talker FM's Facebook feed, you can leave comments. We would love to hear from you. We will try to answer those as best we can. Whatever platform you're listening and or watching this, whether it's the podcast version on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever, or on the YouTube page, make sure you're subscribed. Um, on the YouTube page, we have a new feature on there. It's called Her Tell Good Talks. It's a playlist of just the interviews. Uh, so those are busted out from the larger programs. If you're just looking for a specific interview, you can find it there. Uh, lots of good stuff in there where we turn down the noise of the news cycle by talking to our very knowledgeable guests who we just absolutely enjoy and appreciate them. So until we talk to you tomorrow, hopefully if my voice holds up and the COVID don't get too bad, the creek don't rise and the Lord's willing, uh, we'll be back. Uh, So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well, we hope you're well fed, and we'll talk to you tomorrow on Hurtell. All the music on Hurtell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.